Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And I'm here with my co-host, Alice Su. The Economist's senior China correspondent. This week, rather than David and I asking the questions, we wanted to give that job to our listeners. So for this special episode, we're going to be answering your questions on everything to do with China. This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hi, how's it going? I tell you, if you want to prove that COVID is gone, we're motorcade-tastic around here in China. I was held up by President Macron of France by his motorcade. And then earlier in the week, I was in Changsha for a reporting trip. And we were held up by a very mysterious motorcade Hmm. where they wouldn't tell anyone what was going on, but shut the whole city down. And it turned out to be your former president, Maing Zhou of Taiwan. Oh, interesting. I guess you ran into him right when he was on his way to worship his ancestors in his hometown in Hunan. That's right. And it was a beautifully calibrated motorcade because it was very swash, lots of big limousines and then a kind of chase car at that, but no police cars with flashing lights, because I guess hmm. that would be to recognize him as a political leader, which of course he is not, because Taiwan is not a country if you're in communist China, where I am. And you had your current president, Tsai Ing-wen, in California and in America. How's that been playing, all those visits where you are? In Taiwan... That's obviously the big news, but it's been national holiday for most of the week. It's tomb sweeping festival, same as in China. But in Taiwan, it was also Children's Day. So I saw most people around me were just, you know, spending time with their friends and family. But we journalists were watching closely and still are watching closely every movement, every ship, every plane that's moving the Taiwan Strait and worrying about whether there's going to be a Chinese reaction. Another split screen week for you in Taipei. Yes, exactly. So, David, I am excited to get into this episode because we get to be the ones in the hot seat for a change, and we're going to hear the questions on our listeners' minds. Yeah, and a big thank you to everyone who wrote to us. We were inundated with brilliant questions, and we've selected just a few of our favorites from the inbox. And Alice, you have picked a pretty hard one to start. So we had three listeners who are all asking questions about the role of philosophy in modern Chinese politics. They were James, who listens to this show from North Carolina, Dove, who is in Jerusalem, and John in California. So just an easy one to start. Yeah, exactly. I thought we should address this because understanding how the party thinks about itself is really key to understanding China. And so just very quickly, I think we can answer in two parts. One part would be about how communist is the Communist Party. And for a long time after Mao Zedong, there was this consensus in China as well that, oh, we've moved past the ideological phase of governance. 
there's that famous quote from Deng Xiaoping who says, black cat, white cat, it doesn't matter. As long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. And that's a way of saying we're no longer so stuck on ideology. We just want to focus on GDP growth, making money, improving people's lives. And that is the new purpose, getting rich. But I do think that especially after Xi Jinping came into power, there has been a resurgence of ideology in China. And that's not at all to say that China is moving back towards the form of communist economy of the Mao days, but it matters a lot in terms of party governance. And I think the most important part of that is this Leninist idea of total party authority and party control and why you need a communist party that can guide society forward and can shape people's minds and behavior to lead them to progress. And you really see under Xi Jinping this idea that the party must control everything and all these places that were sort of gray areas with more freedom in the past, such as entertainment, culture, all of these things have now become tools to shape people, to make them obedient to following the party. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think when I was first here 25 years ago, you'd have visiting businessmen and they'd look out the window of their five-star hotel and they'd see a Cadillac showroom and they'd say, well, this place is capitalist. It's not communist in any way. But I think what is really interesting about modern China is how the labels kind of left and right wing in the way that we would use them in other countries don't really work, right? I mean, I have heard Chinese officials say proudly, the reason that people like Elon Musk want to open a factory in China is because we only have one trade union and it behaves itself and doesn't allow strikes. And so we can guarantee that if you invest in China, people will work super hard and they won't go on strike. Now, in the American context or the French context, that makes you sound really right wing. But often when you talk to Chinese scholars or even party officials, one of their criticisms of American capitalism is about sort of income inequality and the power of big money. And they often sound like Bernie Sanders supporter. You know, there's a kind of left wing vibe sometimes the way that they see the economy. But I think where you're absolutely right, Alice, is that at no point do any of these things, whether it's Marxism or capitalism, they're never a constraint on the party. The party never thinks, because we're Marxist, we're not allowed to do this or that. And so this isn't a Marxist country, it's a Marxist-Leninist country. And it's the second half, which tells you all about the discipline and the absolute control. Remember those stories about the Marxist students at Beida, the best university in China, who started a Marxism society? And they got crushed, right? They were shut down because you can't have independent Marxist thought. Marxism is whatever the party says it is, not actual real-life Marxism. Yeah, that's right. So the Chinese authorities talk a lot about how capitalist forces cannot be trusted. But when it comes to workers actually wanting to be empowered or Marxist students wanting to support workers and go and help them organize and help them to strike, that is absolutely not tolerated in China. We hear the claim made all the time that Xi Jinping has done this brilliant thing of sinicizing Marxism. And that's why this version works so well. What do they mean when they talk about sinicizing Marxism? So when the Chinese authorities talk about that, they're kind of selective, right, about which parts of Chinese classical philosophy are being melded into their form of governance. A lot of people praise how Xi Jinping has revived traditional values and culture as a way to boost self-confidence. Like Confucius has become very trendy again in China. But I tend to think that is quite surface level. Some of the things that Xi has promoted, I guess you could say they are Confucian in the sense of him promoting, you know, very traditional gender roles and hierarchy and so on. But Confucianism, it also is a philosophy that believes that people are good and you just need to put them in the right place in this harmonious structure to bring out that goodness. But that is not 
really how Chinese society is working, right? So there's this other school of Chinese political thought, which is called legalism. It, it dates back to the Qin Dynasty. And the core of legalism is this idea that actually humans are not good. Humans are inherently selfish and evil, and they need to be controlled through strict law and punishment. So it does away with all of that Confucian concern for virtue, how to be a junzi, how to be you know an upright person. And I think a lot of Chinese experts would say Xi is much more of a legalist, actually, than a Confucian. I think that's very persuasive. It's kind of the Chinese precursor to Hobbes. You raised a really interesting point about the patriarchal nature of a lot of this traditional culture, that the gender roles are very fixed. And for proof of that, count the women in the Politburo Standing Committee, and it's a number close to or exactly the same as zero. And that's a great way to lead into another couple of excellent questions we had about the gender imbalance in the Chinese population. We had a listener called Joshua, who's in Ohio, and he asked, is there a plan to tackle the gender imbalance? There are 30 million more men than women in China, basically as a result of years of sex-selective abortions. Yeah, and that actually relates to another listener question from Alicia, who asks, what does the future hold for these men who aren't able to marry? But David, you know, these are actually two separate questions, right? One is addressing how the government plans to even out the gender ratio in China? And then two, what is the impact of that imbalance? So why don't we start with the first? Yeah, so China has all kinds of plans, right? But it may be that one of the most powerful forces that changes that centuries-old, millennia-old preference for sons who can carry on the family name is that precisely that economic pressure on parents that if they have a son, then the son is going to have to buy a car and apartment if he wants to have any hope of getting married. Remember back in January, when I rode the slow train through China with all these migrant workers going home for spring festival. My favorite conversation of that whole journey was in the door well between two carriages. And there were two women about 20 years apart in age. And just the simple question of asking them, do you have kids and are they boys and girls? They started talking among themselves about, oh, I've got sons. Oh, lucky you. Is it lucky? No, it's not lucky. They're going to have to buy an apartment. If you don't have an apartment and you don't have money and you want to get married, you're going to have to rob a bank, one of them said. And then they were talking about you know, maybe it's better to have daughters. Right. So in some ways, it might even out by itself. When you look at the latest statistics, do they show that the gender imbalance has already peaked? Is it starting to go down? Yeah, it's still there. Brand new born babies in the last 10 years. I think it's 105.7 boys for every 100 girls, which is better than it was. Overall, nationally, it's like 111 to 100. It's been much worse at some times in modern Chinese history. You know, after the Japanese invaded and occupied China before the Second World War, People just didn't feed girls because they were just too much trouble in a time of war and famine. And the disparities became absolutely gigantic. But what about all these men who aren't able to marry? I mean, there's a grim answer to that. Some of the worst, most shocking stories of abuse of women's rights in recent times have involved men who bought trafficked brides, which is a depressingly common problem. Remember that awful news story a year ago about a mother of eight who was found chained by the neck in like an animal pen? in a village and appeared to have been bought and sold and trafficked several times. It was just an awful images that really shocked a lot of urban women in China who thought, well, that could be us. That awful case of the chained woman came to an official end on April the 7th with prison sentences for six people, including the man who bought her and fathered eight children by her. Uh, Sentences deleted a lot of people expressing shock at his nine-year jail term, which they said was much too short. And there are women's protection laws that talk a good game about how this isn't allowed. But on the ground in a village, if you have 
a family that's paid good money to buy their son a bride, and then the police comes. They might attack the local party committee and burn it down, or they might attack the police and overturn their van. We've seen that in the past, and that's disorder. And so if you're trying to juggle women's rights and social stability, it's not always clear. We've had judges in China saying to women who've come to court because they were trafficked and sold, saying, well, yes, you were sold, but maybe you could stay with your husband if he apologizes because you've got children now and for the sake of stability in society, it would be better if you stayed. So that patriarchy is really resilient in Chinese culture and often overrides some of those anti-trafficking plans and good laws about women's protection. Yeah. So what is going to happen to all these unmarried men? I mean, they become a potential source of instability. So a lot of officials' priority will be to make sure that they are kept under control or satiated, you know, that they have wives wherever they come from. I found an amazing paper when I was writing about that chained woman story, looking into thousands of cases of people trafficking that had reached the legal system. Half of all the women trafficked came from abroad, often from places like Vietnam or Cambodia. About a third of the women were disabled in some way. And so there was a kind of horrible suspicion that maybe their families had somehow been complicit in selling them. The people buying brides are often very uneducated men who didn't go to the big city as migrant workers who are still in the village. Sometimes they're disabled themselves and their families don't want the family line to die out. So they'll club together and buy a woman for them. It's misery upon misery upon misery. And it's a really hard problem to crack. It's a very different side of China from what the authorities usually want us to see. So, David, we do have a few lighter questions. And there's one that really popped out when we saw in the inbox. It is from Martin in South Africa. And he asked, are there any potatoes in China? I have two Chinese cookbooks. One is from the St. Michael Cooking Library, published in 1980. The other is from the chefs at the Yangshuo Cooking School of Guilin. Neither one features potatoes. Are there potatoes in China? We can answer that one quickly, Alice. (laughs) Yeah, there definitely are. China is the world's largest potato producer, actually. In 2021, China produced 94 million tons of potatoes, which was 25% of global output. But it's true that potatoes don't really play the same role in Chinese cuisine as they do in a lot of other cuisines. Generally, people prefer to eat rice or noodles as their staple food, and potatoes are more of a snack or a side dish. So I'm a vegetarian. I take my potatoes very seriously. (laughs) I need to say I was teased by the producers for actually sharing a top spuds list on the group chat. So my favorite potatoes are actually from Guizhou down south, and they have mint and spice and chili peppers. which actually means mint foreign taro or Western taro. Um, but obviously the most famous potato dish would be tudor sir, just those strips yes. of stir-fried potato that can be quite spicy. If you're in Sichuan or Dongbei up in the northeast, you can wrap them in a wheat pancake for a carb frenzy. And you know when you go to those like one-star hotels in the countryside and there's a buffet, then there's often like a little sad dish of cold mashed potato tudor ni. Yeah. My Chinese colleague, she thinks it's a Soviet hangover. Possibly. So I know this question might seem a little bit out of nowhere, but it's actually a great one, I think, because it shows just how large and diverse China is. And whenever you take one little slice of China, whether it's a cookbook from Yangshuo or just one story, it can never represent the entire country. And, you know, all those dishes you were talking about were coming from different parts of the country. And so in some ways, potatoes are a good way to look into the vastness of China. I did want to recommend some recipe sources. There's this one YouTube channel that is very popular. It's called Xiao Gaojie, the magic ingredients, or 
at Magic Ingredients, and it's basically this Chinese woman from Xi'an, and she lives abroad, and she started making these videos during the pandemic, and she has all kinds of classic Chinese dishes. And the great thing is that there are English captions, so you can watch the video and learn from her. Excellent. You're making me hungry. In a moment, we'll be answering more listener questions on Chinese film, on Taiwan. But first, we wanted to remind you that being an Economist subscriber is the best way to enjoy all of our journalism. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And if you're not, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com/drumoffer to find out more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. So, David The next listener we have is Emma, and she actually sent us a voice note to ask her question. Hello, my name is Emma, and I'm a university student from Ottawa. And recently, I've been reading a lot of books about Chinese history. So, my question is: How are historical events like the Chinese Civil War, the Cultural Revolution, or the Great Famine taught in Chinese school and university classes? What does the curriculum say about them? Also, I really love your show and all the hard work you guys put into this podcast. So, thank you so much. Well, our thanks to Emma for listening as well, and a great question. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to answer this question because I think it can be kind of shocking. These huge tragedies that happen in Chinese history are really skimmed over in the textbooks today. And I actually went to middle school in Shanghai in the early two thousands, and I have all these memories of my middle school history teacher cursing the Japanese and the Western powers who came to exploit China, and then praising the Communist Party for its exploits in fighting back and leading China to greatness. And we realized that huge atrocities like the Great Famine—they're reduced to things like three years of natural disaster. That's how they're being taught in the textbooks. And let's be clear: the Great Famine was an absolute catastrophe. That was a man-made famine. Tens of millions of Chinese starved to death. Why? Because Chairman Mao wanted to turn all farming into collective farming, and he was exporting grain overseas for reasons of pride, even when people were starving to death. And now that is blamed on natural disasters like droughts. But at the time, people did talk about how this was a man-made problem. And actually, immediately after the end of the famine, China was a little bit more open, and there was discussion about how. Seven tenths of this disaster was down to errors by people, and only three tenths was down to bad weather. But now, in Xi Jinping's China, the pressure is on to say that the party never makes terrible mistakes. Yeah, and there was this time when Chinese scholars and historians were able to explore a little bit more of true Chinese history. But it's really since Xi Jinping came to power that that space has absolutely closed. And in 2021, the party celebrated its 100th anniversary. And in the lead up to that, there was this big campaign against historical nihilism, which just means. Anybody remembering history that is critical of the party, and there was a hotline set up that people were asked to call to report if they heard of anybody teaching or talking about history that way. And I interviewed a professor at Fudan University in Shanghai who actually 
had a really sad story where she was teaching cultural revolution history, but then got reported by her own students who pasted all these criticisms of her on her classroom door in a way reminiscent of the denunciations that happened during the Cultural Revolution. Oh my goodness, it's echoes of the things she was trying to teach. And let's be clear, this is because Xi Jinping thinks this is existential, right? He thinks the Soviet Union fell because they started to admit that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had made terrible mistakes under rulers like Stalin. And he has said quite clearly that once you do that, you've lost the faith and the trust of the public. And so you must never go down that road. It's all very troubling. So we've been talking about how school books cover the Cultural Revolution, but we also had a question about how films tackle the darker moments of Chinese history. That's right. Remember that episode where I talked about going around the old town of Beijing mm. and the, the alleys, the hutongs? And I mentioned that one of my favorite films about the city is In the Heat of the Sun, Yang Guangshan and Ruzi, that film by Jiang Wen, coming-of-age film about teenagers running wild in the Cultural Revolution. So a listener, Doug, who's in Edinburgh, he said that In the Heat of the Sun is also one of his favorite films. And he asked a really good question. Are any films being made now to rival that golden period where filmmakers seemed able to take on questions like the Cultural Revolution and party corruption? Yeah, that is such a good question because film can often offer a sideways way to discuss history when it's more dangerous to bring it up in a classroom. If you can tackle it through a good story, it's still a way for people to process and reflect. And have you seen In the Heat of the Sun, Alice? No, I actually haven't, but I have it on my to-watch list, especially after hearing your recommendation. But tell me more about it. Well, I guess I love old Beijing. I'm the parent of teenagers, and so I'm very interested in coming-of-age stories. I think what's also brilliant about it is that it captures the politics in a way that is not political. But it is basically about a gang of kids in Beijing, actually quite privileged from a kind of military background. And because of the Cultural Revolution, the thing that they know is that all the adults just disappear because actually they're sent off to cope with near civil war levels of violence somewhere else. And so they are just left to run wild one summer in the back streets of Beijing. And it's kind of moving and it's dark and it's very human. And it's kind of also a love story to Beijing. And so I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, I love that. I love what you said about how it's not about politics, but politics is in the background. That's what's brilliant about some of the best Chinese films. Yeah, so Doug is sadly right that there was with the emphasis on was a golden era where directors could make amazing films about the worst moments of the Mao era. So remember, like The Blue Kite by Tian Zhuang Zhuang or Farewell My Concubine by Chen Kai-ge, these amazing sprawling epics that take in the Cultural Revolution and all these other disasters. And if you just want a kind of simple indicator of how the politics has changed, the same director, Chen Kai-ge, who made Farewell My Concubine, what was his most recent big hit? It was about heroic communist troops defeating the evil Americans in the Korean War, the battle at Lake Changjin. Yeah, I think the Chinese state has done a really good job at co-opting the film industry and into its messaging. It kind of goes back to what we were saying about Leninism and the idea that everything has to serve as a tool for the party. Yeah, and Doug asked about corruption. I don't know if you watched it. I confess I haven't yet watched it, but the big TV series at the beginning of this year in China has been The Knockout, Kuang Bia, that crime drama, but that's basically about heroic police fighting gangsters. That's where we are now. There is a Chinese film I watched recently that I found very honest and moving, actually. It came out in 2019. It's called Dijiu Tianchang, or So Long, My Son. And it traces the story of one family. It's actually about the one-child policy. and Oh, I remember. Based on a true story, right? Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is also, of course, it was 
allowed to come out because the one-child policy is over and the Chinese government has now shifted to wanting people to have more kids, right? So you can tell censorship instructions change according to what the party prioritizes. And Taiwan has some fantastic cinema. I'm very envious of you being able to watch (laughs) fantastic Taiwanese films. And our next question is actually about the island where you are now, where you live, the self-ruled democratic island of 24 million people, as we're so used to writing in our news stories. And it's an excellent question from another Doug, who sent us a voice note. Hi, David and Alice. My name is Doug, and I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the US. I listen to Drum Tower regularly and absolutely love the show. I especially appreciate your ability to balance thoughtful analysis with open-mindedness. That is not a simple task when reporting on China, and you two make it look natural. There's a topic I've been wondering about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. The question is this. What are the dynamics within China in support for or against an invasion of Taiwan? Thank you for fielding my question. Keep up the great work, and I'm glad to hear that you're both on the mend. So Doug raises a really important and frankly scary question, whether the Chinese support an invasion of Taiwan or not. And one basic answer is we don't know for sure, because there are no opinion polls, at least no polls that the results get published for us to see. So you're basically reduced to what do you hear when you go and talk to Chinese people about this during your reporting? And what can you see on social media, although censors make that hard to read? Yeah, and I'm really keen to hear your answer to this, David, because of where I am here in Taiwan, it's sort of the answer that everybody wants to know. So the kind of good and bad news, and the good news, if you want to crumble comfort, is that it doesn't feel urgent. Chinese people don't say, I will pay any price. Let's just have the war now. I will lose you know, all the wealth that this country has built up. You can blow up the apartment that I just built. You can send my son to die. It isn't that kind of fanatical feel, maybe a little bit like sort of Vladimir Putin was trying to whip up in Russia before the invasion of Ukraine. So it doesn't feel urgent. That's the good news. The bad news is that when you talk to Chinese people, and even Chinese people who know Taiwan and are quite sympathetic, they don't believe that Taiwan has much agency or say in this. It feels like Taiwan is a kind of chess piece in a geopolitical game. Yeah. So I guess going back to the question, though, do Chinese support an invasion? And we don't really know if they're at the point where they would welcome a war. We see that kind of rhetoric online, but doesn't mean people are actually prepared to make sacrifices for it. But we do see this kind of fatalism. So I went to a temple in the mainland of China recently because it was founded by a really famous Taiwan-based monk who died in February, age 95. And I went there to meet Chinese Buddhists who really admire him, some of whom had actually been to Taiwan on business or for studies. Some of them were unusually sympathetic. But the final answer from most of them was some version of, but it's only 24 million people and we are 1.4 billion people. Who are they kidding that they can defy the Chinese mainland forever? And it's so similar to the answers that I got when I went up to the Russian border and talked to Chinese people about Ukraine. The rights and wrongs don't really matter in Chinese political debate. It's about who is stronger and the weak just take what they can get. And I have to say it's sad, David, because sometimes I see that here in Taiwan too. People want to have their sovereignty and they fought really hard to have this democracy and they want to protect it. But I often hear people say, we are so small and we're so trapped between superpowers. How are we supposed to protect ourselves and shape our own destiny? And I think what I could say with confidence is that if there was a bloodless way to take Taiwan back and crush its democracy, ban its opposition party and have everyone do what Beijing tells them, That would be really, really popular. And I can say that because that was kind of the mood with Hong Kong when you had the Hong Kong protests, that if you defy Beijing, a lot of people in China want you crushed and broken. 
The bigger question is, would they pay the price of an all-out war with all the destruction that that entails? And they're not really being invited to think about that by the Communist Party at the moment. The nationalism is intense, but the war drums are not loud. Yeah, David, I am familiar with that hyper-nationalistic environment and how difficult that can be for foreign reporters in China. And that's something a bunch of our listeners have asked about. Paige, Adil, and Jeff all asked, what is it like to be a journalist covering China today? And how is it that you're able to be critical of the government in your reporting? How is it that you can sit there and say all these things on Drum Tower and still survive? It's a really fair question. I'm almost kind of reluctant to answer in case I jinx it and you know, the police burst through the door. But here's the honest truth. Point one, we're broadcasting in English and we are behind a firewall. So ordinary Chinese people need a VPN to listen to Drum Tower or any of The Economist's podcasts. And having a VPN is not legal and you can, in some circumstances, get punished for having one. And if we were in Chinese and it was easy for Chinese people to access it, then we would have a gigantic amount more pressure Foreign journalists, it can often be tough. We're followed, we're monitored, people refuse interviews, all that stuff. But we are not the heroes. The heroes are Chinese colleagues and Chinese journalists still trying to do decent journalism in this country because they get jailed, they lose their jobs. Journalists who work in the system have to pass increasingly strict political tests just to renew their press cards every year. I mean, they're not shot in the head like critical journalists are in Vladimir Putin's Russia. This isn't that kind of dictatorship. But it is not a dictatorship with any respect for the free press. And I think the foreign press, we're tolerated because the kind of countries that don't have a foreign press don't get much investment. And China really wants the investment. I think that's why we're tolerated here. But at the same time, I do think it takes a lot of courage and grit to stay in China and keep reporting. So I respect you for that, David. And that's especially because in the last few years, we've seen that China has used so much more hostage diplomacy, where they detain people of certain nationalities when those countries are having poor relations with China. And that has even affected a lot of journalists. And for me, I, I can say as an American who used to work for an American outlet, I could feel very clearly that you're treated very differently based on your passport and then based on where your headquarters is. So I know that for reporters who are still in China, sometimes it can feel very much like you are a geopolitical pawn. And finally, we have a question from Michael, who also sent us a voice note. Hi, David and Alice. My name is Michael, and I live in Hong Kong. I was wondering if you could recommend any good books on China by some expert China watchers. Two books I really enjoyed, but are maybe a little out of date, are What's Wrong with China and Factory Girls. So any other recommendations would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Michael. That is an excellent question. And it's always one I wonder about on podcasts, like, oh, what are people reading? The ones I always recommend are Wealth and Power by Orville Schell and John Delury. And I think that's just a really good book because it walks you through intellectual history of people who shaped modern China. And it explains why China has this fixation on becoming wealthy and powerful. Another one that I really like and always recommend is China in 10 Words by Yu Hua, who is a really renowned Chinese writer. He has these 10 different phrases that encapsulate modern China, and he mixes social satire with his own memories of growing up through the Cultural Revolution. And finally, there is a book by Teping Chen, who is a Wall Street Journal reporter who was in China for a long time. And then she wrote a collection of short stories called Land of Big Numbers. And it sounds like it's a book about data, but it's not. It's a bunch of 
magical realist sci-fi-esque short stories, but they really capture what it's like to be in China today and that feeling when you see something happening and it's stranger than fiction, but actually it's just China. She captures that exactly. And Alice, I know exactly why you're mentioning fiction there, because although Michael asked us about books by expert China watchers, and there are some great ones, actually kind of the latest book on Xi Jinping, it could be really well written, but it kind of gets out of date quite fast. And sometimes you have to kind of sit back and either read some history or even read some literature, I think, to kind of get to grips with this place, because there's kind of ancient, longer-term trends and forces that really shape this place. And, and trying to keep up with books, the kind of cutting edge, is often a bit tricky. So a fantastic book, trying to explain how China thinks of itself as either a multiracial, multicultural country, or is it an empire? There's a fantastic book called What is China? by Ge Zhao Guang. It's translated. He's a really interesting liberal historian writing about how China is actually this kind of multicultural empire, just doesn't like to admit it because its Americans were imperialists. So I would urge everyone, if they haven't, to read one big general book about Chairman Mao, because I think Mao Zedong bestrides the 20th century of China like this kind of blood-soaked colossus. The one-volume book by Zhong Chang and John Halliday, Mao, I think, has really stood the test of time. And then I write a column called Chaguan for The Economist. So I'd like to give a plug to the play Chaguan or Tea House by Lao Shu because it's a pretty grim read, but it's short. It's a play. And I think it's a really powerful look at how regimes come, the empire falls, new regime comes, but this one tea house, the same kind of awful grim pressures play on the owner of that all the way through. And I think it's a kind of look at the pessimism of a lot of intellectual life in China. So you probably find something cheerful to read right afterwards, but I do recommend it. We wanted to say another big thank you to everyone who sent in questions. We couldn't get to all of them, but we loved reading them. We hope we'll be able to do more episodes like this in the future, so do keep writing to us. Our email address is drum at economist.com. And thank you for listening to Drum Tower. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. <laughs>